You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. You may have heard this bit of wishful thinking from epidemiologists during this pandemic. If we could somehow wave a magic wand and make everyone freeze in place for 14 days while standing six feet apart, this virus wouldn't be able to jump to a new host and the infection would sputter out. Two weeks not moving a muscle. Well... We can't do that. It's not practical or even possible. But there are practical things we can do. Continue social distancing, stay at home to the extent possible. And now the latest recommendation from the CDC, wear a mask if you go out in public. There's no magic solution for this crisis, but we might be able to learn something from fantasy, which, by the way, is our setup for what's coming next. There are a lot of different reactions to zombies in popular culture, ranging from intense dislike all the way to superfans, hence the current zombie craze. Seth, what's your take on zombies? Are you a fan? Well, I I do like them because they're so relentless and mindless. I guess they're mindless because they don't have any brains. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's it's a different kind of enemy than the sort of the high tech ones that you see so regularly. Yeah. And the the zombie craze actually goes back to the um, 1980s, 1970s, doesn't it? Well, I, you know, zombies were something that uh, existed in the fictional realm, I think, before that. But George Romero produced a bunch of low-budget films, including one shot in Pittsburgh, <laughs> that garnered a huge audience. So, yes, I guess you could say the 1980s were the birth of popular zombieism. Well, these walking corpses keep popping up, which I guess is kind of a calling card of the undead, and have continued to do so for years, reanimated in comic books, novels, television series, and movies. We could say that the simple reason zombies persist in culture is that monsters represent our deepest fears. That is at least one reason why some people find them useful, helping us to address and respond to real-life crises, such as what we're trying to get through right now. Two wildly popular books that helped kick off this zombie craze the Zombie Survival Guide, and World War Z. And the latter, by the way, was made into a movie. Both sprang from the mind of writer Max Brooks. But first, he did a lot of research, not into zombies, but about disaster preparedness. His expertise on the topic got him invited to become a lecturer at the U.S. Naval War College and a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Max Brooks is also the son of Mel Brooks, and together they did a public service announcement about the importance of social distancing, which we'll hear later. But first, let's get to those zombies, because while I didn't know much about them before preparing for our interview with Max Brooks, my nephew Archie did. I interviewed him about a project he was quite devoted to and finished last summer. We'll begin our conversation with Max Brooks about that. Max, uh, we would like you to hear this short interview that I did with my nephew, Archie, and, and get your reaction, because you'll recognize what you and he have in common. It, is it okay if we play this for you? Play away. My name is Archie Bentley. I am 10 years old. So you have um, some writing in front of you. It's a manual. What's, what's the title of your manual? How to Survive the Zombie Apocalypse. And can you describe it? Is it something that you wrote? (laughs) Did you go to other sources? Are there drawings? What is it exactly? I did go to other sources, like online, and I got some of my information from books, like World War Z, for instance. The first three pages uh, I read in the bookstore kind of inspired me to write something to, like a manual to help me survive. And there are no drawings. 
No drawings. Okay. What prompted you to to write this? You wrote this months ago before any of us were facing this pandemic. Uh, Why did you write a manual of how to survive a zombie attack? At first, I wrote it because I just wanted a manual to tell me how to survive. If you got lost or if, if like, a chemical reaction happened in your area. But it was a bit boring, um, so I wanted to make it more exciting. So I added some zombies in. And I made it a zombie manual. Archie, um, what's the single scariest thing about zombies? They're undead. They have no brains, yet they can live. And all they live for is attacking you. Zombies were always kind of a thing, like, um, in my nightmares. Myths, legends, and kind of, like, mysteries are really my thing. So I kind of wanted to do something of survival, with something that's completely fake and not real, so that would be zombies. I wonder if you could just read some of your suggestions there. I know that you have a lot of pieces of advice, but um, is there one or two that you just want to read to us from your manual? Here's one where I got the background from the internet, but I wrote, have a 72-hour kit prepared and and packed into a comfortable backpack, ready to go at a moment's notice. Water, food, iodine tablets, flashlight, batteries, first aid kit, earplugs, matches, good hiking boots, tarp, sleeping bag, three sets of extra clothes, Swiss army knife, and Twinkies. (laughs) You know, Archie, finally, you know, it's kind of, it could be kind of depressing to be chased around by zombies all the time. You seem pretty cheerful, though. How does one stay cheerful and optimistic in a zombie attack? I have a manual here about how to stay cheerful. Um, either listen to your favorite music. Don't be a zombie. Are you doing anything right now that comes from your manual? Yeah, listening to music. All right, stay well, Archie. Thank you, and thank you for having me. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Well, Max, I wonder if you have a reaction to hearing that, to hearing a 10-year-old draw inspiration from your work to create his own survival manual. He read the wrong book. (laughs) This poor kid read the wrong zombie book. My first book was literally a a book on how to fight zombies. And and we, we have to send it to him. Immediately. You've got to email me his address so so I can get this to him. Well, I'm sure he would love that. Um, and I want to apologize for my nephew reading the book at the bookstore and not, and not buying no, it. No, that's quite all right. Listen, now I know who to go to when the dead rise. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to presume that, that he would protect me. But, you know, if there's a chance, if you could just pass him a note and just let him know that, you know, when the dead start to rise, uh, I'm coming to his house. Max, uh, for you, what's the appeal of zombies? I mean, life after death, is this just a sort of a maybe forlorn hope that you can come back even as a mindless, brainless critter? What? No. That, that's crazy. I'm not, there, there's, no, there's no want or love. There's nothing but fear. Did you have a fear of zombies when you were younger? Yes, I'm terrified of zombies. My very first book is The Zombie Survival Guide because I was terrified of zombies and I wanted to write a book on how to protect myself. Your, your book about, about zombies is really a survival manual and you, you, um, there's a lot of research that goes into this about actual preparedness in a disaster. But I wanted to just talk about the appeal of zombies for a moment. I mean, you heard what the appeal was for a 10 year old, but I do wonder if um, there's something about monster stories and horror stories that help adults as well imagine the unimaginable well let let's just talk about this 10 year old for a minute and say that he nailed it because when you're trying to impart facts when you're trying to educate uh the two great pitfalls are either scaring people away or boring them to death and this young man completely understands that he was actually initially setting out to write a real disaster manual and he realized he he wasn't going to get anywhere So what do you do? How do you impart real knowledge and yet keep people engaged? And and this young survivalist figured out the magic solution, which is you give a fictional response, but you give factual solutions. And he did it. And that's literally all I do. Research what really goes wrong in disasters. Because for every one person who would die of a zombie, 
uh, how many people would die of infection, dehydration, malnutrition, accidents. And that was a disaster prep scenario with zombies thrown in. And of course, I mean, for people who are unfamiliar with zombies, as I was until not that long ago, there is the theme of viruses. A pandemic, um, I mean, a viral attack in, in the case of a, a zombie attack turns people into zombies, but a virus is still involved. Yeah, uh, zombies are a great metaphor for viruses. It's, it's my, my zombie virus, in, in many ways I based on AIDS because that was the plague of my generation. And it was, uh, it's based on person-to-person contact, exchange of fluids, no different than AIDS. That's why I didn't make it airborne. Uh, and also the reason I made my zombies slow instead of fast is because most effective pandemics are ignored or downplayed. It's the difference between COVID-19 and Ebola. Ebola is a fast zombie. The obvious fear of a zombie running down the street is enough to scare the entire public into acting quickly and efficiently. Whereas a slow zombie, you can, you can laugh off. The same way with COVID-19, where we were told, oh, you're going to be fine. It's, it's, hey, it's, it's less than the flu. Don't worry about it. Uh, that was AIDS too. I can't get it. Other people can get it. I'll be fine. And it's that notion of I'll be fine uh, that gives aid and comfort to the enemy. And so that is why I made this, my zombies the way they are. And, and by the way, I'm not the first person to do this. You know, George Romero got there first and George Romero created the world that me and other zombie writers are just living in. And in one of his great movies, Dawn of the Dead, the most important zombie movie ever made, he literally has one of his characters saying, why don't people just organize? Why don't they just do the right thing? If people made the right choices, we could stop this, which is exactly what public health experts say when there's a plague. You mentioned the fact that uh, the zombies are slow, and that has always been a puzzlement to me, Max, because they seem so slow that a defense is, is simply obvious to just round them all up and knock them all down. Uh, and, and yet you say, well, okay, being slow is just one of their traits. It's like uh, you say the COVID virus. But how am I supposed to be afraid of something that I can run away from? Yeah, well, same thing. Why did this disease, why did COVID-19 get out of control? It's the most stoppable disease ever. If you just had efficient tests, good sanitation, good public health, people practice good hygiene in phase one, and if God forbid phase two comes around, people practice social distancing. This is not an asteroid heading for the earth. This is not Godzilla coming out of the ocean. All pandemics, all of them, are easily, easily preventable. The only way a germ is able to attack and kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, is if people do not react accordingly. Same thing with a virus. And you see this in George Romero's movies, where people make bad choices and they let it spread out of control and they're governed by misinformation, denial, arrogance, greed, and just utter stupidity. And before you know it, the world ends. Yeah, the Romero films were very popular. There was also a parody, of course, Shaun of the Dead. I, I, I know that you lecture at West Point. What is indeed the point that you're trying to make to the military strategists? Well, I should say that uh, World War Z was on the reading list of the presidential uh, I guess you'd call it the presidential reading list at the Naval War College. This was many years ago. I was asked to come lecture. And I talked about creativity and I talked about how societies respond to crisis. Because in all my work, I research heavily real threats. For every one hour I spend writing, I spend 10 to 100 hours researching. And like I said, my, my threats are fictional. My solutions are factual. And so therefore, when, if we're talking about a plague, a natural disaster, a war, all the pieces that you find in my book are the exact same puzzle of reality. How do individuals respond? How do systems respond? How do governments respond? I speak to the military and at the Modern War Institute, I lecture to cadets and I publish articles specifically on systemic threats. You know that there uh, has been research, actually, uh, by mathematicians in which they use zombie apocalypse 
as a model for for this kind of stuff for for you know viruses and and other health threats so apparently it has some similarities in terms of the exponential spread of the disease and uh, also the exponential decrease of the infection that sort of thing well that, that that's yeah of course you don't need a mathematician to understand the spread of infection anybody can do that uh, as Jude Law's character said in uh, Contagion, you can do it on a napkin. One zombie bites two people. Two people then bite four people. Four people bite 16 people. Uh, you do not need a PhD in advanced mathematics to figure out how this works. It is no different than what is called the r naught of any other infection. How is a virus transmitted? My zombie virus is transmitted through fluid. Now, bites are the most common, but not the only. If you have a cut and you touch a wounded friend who's been bitten and you're trying to seal up their wounds, but then a little bit of infected blood gets in your blood, you get infected. In World War Z, I have a bullet passing through an infected body into a healthy person with just a tiny bit of virus on the tip. That is how one virus, my virus, is spread. Other viruses are spread through the air. We know that with COVID-19, it can live in what's called fomites, infected surfaces. Somebody sneezes, covers their hand over their mouth, gets it on their hand, touches a door handle. Someone else then touches that door handle and then scratches their eye. That is how another virus can be infected. Something like measles is so virulent that it can live in a room hours after someone has left that room. When figuring out how a zombie virus is spread, it's no different than the basic common sense with how any virus is spread. What's happening now is very real. And as anxious as adults are about what's happening, there, there's a very real effect on children. Um, they've had their routines disrupted. And because children don't miss anything, they're picking up on all of our adult fears. I wonder if you have any advice for how to talk to children about what's happening. Yeah, I think that I think children are much more resilient than we give them credit for. I know we're, we're living in an age where we are reluctant to push our children in any way, shape, or form. But I think this is an opportunity to empower children by showing them that they have a responsibility beyond themselves. You know, I've always been honest with my son. I've always, he's 14, he just turned 15. He had to spend his 15th birthday trapped in our house. But he is, he is of an age where I am able to explain to him the facts. And I am also able to make him understand that he has a job to do, that it is not just about him, that he is part of a larger family. And he has to do his part. He has to do his chores. He has to homeschool. He has to make sure that he does not go infect his grandma or his grandpa. Uh, if he was eight years old, obviously I would speak about it in a different way. And it's not just about age. Different children have different, obviously, psychological and emotional makeup. So you have to know your child and you have to know what they can take. But I, what I will not do is sugarcoat and what I will never, ever, ever do is make him believe in the, the myth, the lie, that he is the center of the universe and that he is not part of something bigger than himself. We continue our conversation with Max Brooks and his assessment of our national response to the coronavirus pandemic and whether humor has any role in helping us get through a global crisis. Let's call this what it is, Zombies, Bigfoot, and Max Brooks on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. 
Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. On the subject of how monster stories can help us to make sense of what's happening now, I was thinking about the titles of old horror films, sequels, which were often something like Son of Frankenstein, Son of Godzilla, Son of Dracula, Son of Lassie. And so our discussion about monsters with author Max Brooks could be called Son of Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks, of course, is the director of several classic comedy films, including Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs, High Anxiety, and that last one is quite an appropriate theme these days, and his own Frankenstein comedy, Young Frankenstein. It's pronounced Frankenstein. Max and his dad teamed up to make a public service announcement about the importance of social distancing during the coronavirus. And we'll play that video for you in a moment. Then we'll talk to Max, who was a writer on Saturday Night Live for two years, about whether humor has a role during this scary time and about his assessment of the national response to the virus. It's a topic of his lectures at the Modern War Institute at West Point. But first, a way that we can all help stay safe from Max Brooks and his father, Mel. And to set up this scene, Max is standing outside his dad's place, waving at him through the glass door. And Max, is there anything else you want to say to set this up? Sure. When this virus was starting to penetrate American society, we were in a great amount of denial. And what I wanted to try and get through was that it's not just about getting infected, it's about who you can infect. So I wanted to make it personal because that is how you get messages to the public. You speak to the heart. And the truth is, if I got the coronavirus, I would probably be fine. But if I gave it to my dad, he might not be fine. He probably wouldn't be fine. So I called my dad and said, hey, let's do a video where we explain in a very personal, funny, and practical way about how to keep people safe. Hi, I'm Max Brooks. I'm 47 years old. This is my dad, Mel Brooks. Hi, Dad. He's 93. If I get the coronavirus, I'll probably be okay. But if I give it to him, he could give it to Carl Reiner, who could give it to Dick Van Dyke, And before I know it, I've wiped out a whole generation of comedic legends. When it comes to coronavirus, I have to think about who I can infect. And so should you. So practice social distancing. Avoid crowds, wash your hands, keep six feet away from people. And if you've got the option to stay home, just stay home. Do your part, don't be a spreader. Right, Dad? Right, go home. I'm going, I'm going. Go. Love you. I really love that. Uh, first, I just want to see how is your dad and, and how is your family? How's everyone doing? Well, my dad, he's fine. I check in on with him every day. I, we were over at his house, I think about a week ago, but we did not go in the house. We waved to him through the window. We understand that he is in a very high risk group. My mother-in-law has had lung cancer twice. We cannot see her. Uh, we do not go anywhere. We don't even go to the store. We have We have enough supplies and I've put enough seedlings in the vegetable garden that we get enough leafy greens, but we are trying as best we can to do our part to not spread the infection. Uh, Max, you said uh, you decided to use humor for this PSA. And, uh, you know, it was thought maybe 40, 50 years ago that humor was the wrong thing. It was better to take the approach that they're taking now, for example, for labeling cigarettes, where you show the consequences and you try and scare people into better behavior. And yet, I think that uh, research has shown a long time ago that if you try to get people to drive more safely by showing auto wrecks and, you know, the carnage that results, that just turns people off. That humor is actually the better approach. Did you have that in mind or did it just strike you that this was the way to go? Definitely. Uh, I would I would argue that maybe 50 years ago, I wasn't alive 50 years ago, I'm 47. Uh, maybe people did take this stuff in a much more serious, heavy-handed way, but I would argue that 70 years ago, we used humor all the time. In, in World War II, comedy and cartoons and comic books were one of the greatest tools ever. When Pearl Harbor was attacked and the, the American government needed to educate the public, they reached out to the storytellers and they even got Disney on board. 
And Walt Disney somehow was able to put his Nazi-loving anti-Semitism on the shelf and make movies that made us laugh, but then taught us how to defeat Hitler. You know, I'm really glad that you say that because um, I've been wondering whether or not there's room for laughter or humor during this time, other than the jokes about the stress of being cooped up. And I know how important humor is, but it feels like there are right ways and wrong ways to use humor in this situation, even though it's really what we could all use a dose of. Well, of course there is. Uh, this is not this is not my first rodeo. Uh, my very first big grown-up job was writing for Saturday Night Live. And I got the job two weeks before 9-11. And we had a very big challenge in front of us. Do we use humor? Do we not? We, we did. And we didn't use it, I think, half as well as a man who became a force of nature, Jon Stewart. Jon Stewart was very brave and very factual and very deep and very smart. But he was also very funny. And he talked America through 9-11, the Iraq War, Katrina, and everything that followed. In the, in the course of your disaster planning guide and the research that you've done in preparedness, disaster preparedness, who did you talk to? Um, and what did they tell you about how prepared the world, or at least the U.S. was, in its ability to respond to a pandemic? Well, in, in the course of my research and in the course of my work with the Modern War Institute, I have also been fortunate enough to work for the bipartisan biodefense panel. Uh, and this is a group uh, including people like Tom Ridge and Joe Lieberman, Donna Shalala, uh, Tom Daschle, who are trying to get us ready for the next wave of biological attacks, bioterrorism, using germs instead of bombs. And... I've been fortunate enough to be educated by them as to our state of readiness. We are not as ready as we should be, but I can tell you that we have the plans and the training in place to deal with this pandemic. There are certain crises that require leaps of imagination, like 9-11, things that had yet to happen, terrorists hijacking planes and flying them into buildings. That was, that, that was something relatively new and therefore required a leap of the imagination. Pandemics, germs, disease have been with us since day one of the human race. That does not require a leap of imagination. That requires nothing more than remembrance. We have something called the National Response Framework. That is the master disaster plan. And in that plan is the Biological Incident Annex to the Response and Recovery Federal Interagency Operations Plan. And if you're wondering how I'm able to remember such a complex term, I don't. It's sitting right here on my desk. It is <laughs> free and open to the public, and the government wants you to read it and download it and understand it. That is the advantage of living in a free and open society, unlike an autocracy like China. We have a plan. We have had a plan. We have been working to refine this plan since 1918. So the notion that we were caught unaware is an unforgivable, indisputable lie. Th that's unsettling. Um, it does seem that people are taking this quite seriously now, even if there was an uneven response across the country, at least in the United States initially, about a month ago. But the question is, are there things even now, that we could be doing that we're not? I mean, are we throwing everything that we can at this thing, Max? You're kidding, right? Oh, my God. No, we, this, this, is, this is a disastrous response. We have not enacted the national response framework, which is right there, which includes the Defense Production Act. And what the Defense Production Act allows the government to do is to organize the private sector and allow them to work in partnership to produce the equipment that we need. This is why we have a Defense Production Act. So we don't have to build factories overnight. And also so we don't have to nationalize factories like in a communist country. The Defense Production Act is there so our government can work in an equal partnership with our massive capitalist production base 
which we have done since World War II, by the way. So we have this amazing tool, and I think the president has gone back and forth on whether or not he's going to enact it. The Defense Production Act, if it does kick in in earnest, can you give us an idea of how it identifies a supply chain and puts it together? Just give it a, us an example of what the government can do. I've used, this, I've used this example many times. Here's a simple example of how the Defense Production Act could work. New York needs rubber gloves. New York State cannot build a rubber glove factory overnight. However, there is a rubber glove factory in Ohio that's ready to go. But that company, that private company that makes the rubber gloves, cannot get a supply of latex. However, in Pennsylvania, there is a condom company that has a warehouse full of latex. Now, obviously, that condom company ain't making a lot of condoms because strangers, they, they ain't meeting right now. What the Defense Production Act would do would allow the federal government to buy that latex from the condom company in Pennsylvania, use the logistics of the United States military to then get that latex to the Ohio rubber glove company, make the gloves, and then use that same logistics train to get it within hours to New York City. That's how the Defense Production Act works. Wow. But, but Max, uh, obviously, that's something that has been done uh, ever since the First World War, actually. I mean, you know, they, they, they took over the railroads. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned nationalization. It was sort of a semi-nationalization. We've, we've seen this play out several times in the last hundred years. Why is it not playing out now? I mean, it seems so obvious to say we need this, 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 and this. These are the industries that can convert to production right away. Just order it to be done. Just do it. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sitting in the White House. Maybe it is uh, ideology. Maybe there's a, a cabal of, of very rabid, small government politicians who do not want to see big government succeed, particularly in a crisis, because then it validates the notion of having a strong federal government. Maybe it is just wishful thinking. Maybe it is just utter incompetent stupidity? I don't know. What I do know is that since the 1960s, we have been degrading and shaming and disbelieving our government and our institutions that we have been putting together for decades before. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. In the 1960s, the left attacked our government as the enemy. Then in the, in the 1980s, the right did the exact same thing. So now both sides have been chewing away at these institutions that were put in place to keep us safe. And now suddenly we are calling on this organism called the United States government that we have seen as the enemy to come in and save us. Well, as Max emphasizes, this is kind of a known threat. It's not like the 9-11 attacks, which were things that people had not really imagined. We know about pandemics, and we know how it's going to play out. We know that the curve goes up exponentially, it flattens out, it turns over, it goes down exponentially. So dealing with it doesn't require magic sauce. It's doing what we know how to do. So you say that pandemics are something that we're familiar with, and yet... This is very unfamiliar to most of us, Seth, and it's it's very scary. And the uncertainty that's involved is also scary. Um, so it's it's good to hear you say that there are some things that science can predict about pandemics, and that can give us some comfort. Well, there's an institutional memory. That's the point. It's not that we personally have a memory of these things. Some people will, but in general not, as you say. But the institutions of science do have a memory. They know what happened they know what will happen, and they know how to combat it. Up next, more of our conversation with author Max Brooks about a new book about monsters that also deals with disaster planning. And this time, the menace is not zombies, but hirsute hominids. This episode is Zombies, Bigfoot, and Max Brooks on Big Picture Science.
Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Zombies aren't the only cryptozoological creatures that are featured in our nightmares or that lazily lope through the novels of Max Brooks. Making an appearance in his newest book is a hairy bipedal animal supposedly endemic to the Pacific Northwest. Mr. Brooks says that Bigfoot or Sasquatch can represent many things, but one might be another manifestation of nature red in tooth and claw. How well are modern humans prepared to defend themselves when nature rises up against us? Max Brooks' forthcoming book, Devolution, a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre, is fiction, in case there was any doubt. I can set the premise that there is a, a very high-end, very high-tech eco-community settled in the Cascade Mountains as the new Levittown, the new example of how we could live, how technology could combine with the green revolution to save the planet. These are not dirty, filthy hippies. These are the most, not affluent, but I would say upper middle class and wired in individuals you could find. This community is about drone deliveries and solar panels and smart homes that will then signal handymen to come in their electric driverless vehicles to fix everything and you can telecommute to work and then have an afternoon walk in the woods and it really is the great example of of how we could be living until mount rainier erupts and not only cuts off our community but allows them to be forgotten so suddenly this little neighborhood of very high paid very highly educated david sedaris fans realize that they can't change a light bulb and they're running out of food, and winter's coming. And if that's not bad enough, the eruption has driven a pack of very large, very hungry Sasquatch creatures out of their traditional hunting grounds. And they need to stock up on calories too. And they've suddenly come up against a pen of sheep. Well, Max, I'm curious why you chose Bigfoot, because I read something about your fear about Bigfoot when you were growing up, and I had the same thing. I grew up in Wisconsin, and in the 70s and the early 80s, I was really nervous about Bigfoot. There were a lot of stories about, uh, you know, urban legends and stories about Bigfoot. And I was nervous to go in our backyard. We had, you know, kind of a forested backyard. And I'm just wondering, did we share the same fear growing up? I think we did. I grew up uh, in a, in a post-war ranch style house with big plate glass windows surrounded by trees. So late seventies, early eighties, watching those faux Bigfoot shows, those documentaries, I was terrified that suddenly I would look and, and the wall next to me, the glass wall would shatter and this um, <laughs> massive ape would come from my throat. So I just took a childhood fear and I'm using it to tell a story about a society that is based on comfort at the expense of resilience. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing, Max, because to begin with, there are the Bigfoot, which are, uh, you know, driven out of their happy hunting grounds. I guess not happy hunting grounds, but they're hunting grounds. Uh, so they're an obvious threat. Uh, but also, it's the fact that their lifestyle has proven unsustainable in some ways. It was dependent on the outside world in ways they hadn't foreseen, perhaps. Uh, is, is this a shot against the survivalists, the, the people who try and get off the grid? Oh, no, no. Yeah. No, the, the, survive, the, the people who try to get off the grid, I don't tend to think about. I think that those people are as useful as an appendix. No, these are people they're not off the grid, they are the grid. The grid has now allowed us to live anywhere on the planet with the comforts of the Upper East Side of Manhattan. That's the whole point of, this, of my town, of Greenland. Like I said, these are not hippies. These are people 
who are wired in. But what happens when the wires are cut? And this is the society we're living in literally right now. How many of us are sitting at home and don't want to go to the grocery store because they don't want to get infected and are trying to order their food online? And how, many of that, how much of that food is not showing up or is showing up wrong? Because while it was fun and exciting to just tap on your phone for fresh same-day delivery, there wasn't the logistics resiliency to be able to deliver that food in a crisis. This is happening right now. And yet we feel like we're resilient, but really what we are, it sounds like, is really dependent on technology. So we feel like there's, especially in certain parts of the country, I shouldn't say all parts of the country, um, but there's this idea that for every problem, there's a tech solution. And I wonder if now um, we're finding that we can't just create technology to solve every problem. Um, that there's some kind of old-fashioned, common-sense, resilience, DIY, and understanding of nature that we need to employ as well. Well, I don't, I don't think it has to be DIY. I, I certainly don't want everyone to start digging uh, latrines in their backyards. I have no problem with technology. I like it. I, I support it. I think we should have these things. But I think when we design these new systems, we have to take into account what could go wrong. And if you want an example, look no farther than the Empire State Building. On the top of that building was built an airport for the day that we would all be commuting to work in giant bags of hydrogen. That is literally why the Empire State Building has that spire, because it never occurred to people that we wouldn't all be going to work in a bunch of miniature Hindenburgs. It, it was actually uh, tested out. They, they did dock some, some, some dirigibles there, right? It worked. It was great. Everyone said, this is going to be the wave of the future. You're, you're going to leave your house in Connecticut or New Jersey or wherever, and you're going to drive to your local blimp port, and the blimp is going to take off and take you right to your building. What could possibly go wrong? Another theme that came up for me, besides the one about technology, is whether or not we've lost touch with nature. I know that seems kind of pat, but the reason it did is that scientists have not just been warning about pandemics, but specifically of the role that deforestation has played in awakening them. In other words, when we clear away trees, perhaps we burn them to make way for agriculture, we eliminate this buffer between wild animals and their vectors and we can create a spillover effect. In fact, just today, the day that we're recording this, there was a headline about a story, how deforestation and climate change could unleash a mind-boggling number of coronaviruses. So I'm wondering if your book is also exploring that idea of um, these sort of well-meaning back-to-nature types coming up against real nature in tooth and claw one, and also the fact that we don't really understand how to live in harmony with nature anymore. Yes. No, that is, that is exactly one of the themes of the book. You can't live in harmony with nature because it's not harmonious. Nature sets the rules, and you can't write your own rule book and expect nature to obey. That is the problem with the people in my little eco-community. These are urbanites. These are people who have never been in nature and therefore are able to anthropomorphize it. This is the problem. Uh, th this article that came out today about plagues crawling out of jungles that are being cut down, to that I just say, duh, because we've known about this for decades. Uh, this is nothing new. We have known the more, the more wilderness we cut down, the more we expose ourselves to hidden pathogens. My work with the biodefense panel has taught me that one of the great vectors of disease into this country is the illegal pet trade because people want their exotic pets. But because those pets are illegal, they're smuggled into this country without any inspections, without any medical checkups. We have no idea what we are bringing into the US. Max, one of the leitmotifs I'm hearing in your comments is preparedness. That, you know, that we seem to be very poor at firing up our crystal balls and seeing the kind of things that could be a threat around the corner. One, of course, is naturally myopic. I'm sure that's wired into us. 100,000 years ago, you didn't have to, you know, worry too much about what might happen to you two weeks into the future. But this preparedness, how do we address that other than calling attention to it? 
Well, I, I think that we need to hold ourselves and our politicians and our corporations accountable to what happens if things go wrong. And that does not mean freaking out and that does not mean having anxiety. In fact, the better you prepare, the calmer you feel. I get into my car every day knowing that generations of safety advocates have put in seatbelts, airbags, crash tests, street lights, speed limits, all the things that will keep me from being killed in a car crash. I know the fact that when I go to a public building and the day that I will go back to a public building, I know that regulations have put in fire exits and lit signs and smoke alarms and a million regulations to make sure that this building doesn't turn into the triangle shirtwaist fire all over again. Preparing is not panicking. If you prepare, you won't panic. It's that simple. Okay, but how do we how do we do that better? I mean, it, it, you know, America is usually a uh, a reactive society, right? And one can assume that after this pandemic, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> goes away, which it eventually will, that you know, people will say we've got to, you know, bring back the uh, the government organizations that help us prepare for the next pandemic and so forth. But they may be missing the next crisis because we don't see them coming. I mean, maybe there's no cure for that. I think one of the things we can do, one specific thing we can do is choose our leaders better. It's that simple. You do not vote for the person you want to have a beer with. You vote for the smart person that will keep you alive. Is there any country that you can point to and say they did it right in the sense that not only did they react correctly, but they prepared correctly? Of course. Uh, I can look at Israel. Israel is always under siege. And Israel understands that they must respond as a nation and not uh, as a gaggle of patchwork systems. Uh, South Korea lives under a dark cloud every day. Taiwan, the exact same thing. They all understand how fragile they are. Little tiny countries who live on the brink of extinction. And so when their country calls, they answer. And they're all doing an infinitely better job than we are. But I will say that one thing America has going for it, and this is a beacon of hope, no other country in the history of the human race is able to adapt so quickly and so radically as Americans. We are a resilient, adaptable people. We are a nation whose last president literally could have been a slave of our first president. I dare you to find me another civilization that has made that much social progress in that short a time. We always get knocked down in the first round of a fight, but we also always get up and we finish that fight. So, so finally, Max, um, this is a lot to take in that we're all taking in every day. And I wonder if you have any final words of advice or even morale boosting to help us face what is still to come because we know there's still a lot to come. And it's okay to have a reminder that this will all end, right? Of course. This disaster, and it is a disaster, is only as bad as we allow it to be. This is, this is not beyond our control. There has never been a time that we have more control over crisis than we do right now. We cannot prevent earthquakes. We cannot prevent solar flares, hurricanes, tornadoes. We can prevent this disease from spreading. We can all do this. We do not have to wait for our government to swoop in and save us. We are the government. I literally just got off a meeting with uh, cadets in the military who are worried about how they're going to lead platoons when those platoons' families are at risk of infection. We can support our troops by making sure their families don't get infected. We, as private citizens in a free and open society, have the power, have the responsibility to do our part, and we can. If everyone just stays at home and does what is required of them, then that social distancing will slow the spread and will make room in the hospitals for other people to get badly needed medical care. This is all on us. Max Brooks, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much, guys. Max Brooks is author of The Zombie Survival Guide, World War Z, and the forthcoming Devolution. 
He is also a lecturer at the U.S. Naval War College and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Well, Seth, so the big picture here is, um, I have to say, I'm surprised. I was intrigued by this idea of looking at this pandemic and how we respond to it through the lens of fiction. And not only just fiction, but monster stories of zombies and Bigfoot. And I think that Max Brooks made a good case for how they're both useful. Yes, well, that's true. And of course, that idea that you have kind of an analog of a real situation and portray the reaction in fiction. I mean, you could think of War of the Worlds written in 1898. That was something similar. It had to do with the British Empire, in fact. But one point that I thought that Max made that really, you know, struck a chord with me was this idea of his characters valuing comfort over resilience. They didn't even realize that they weren't resilient. Everybody was connected. Everybody was comfy but they didn't have that resilience against a threat that they hadn't foreseen. And he's saying, look, we know what to do here. We're not on the Titanic as it's going down. We can all get a lifeboat if we just do what we know we should be doing. Look, the message here is fundamentally optimistic. We will get through this, but the pain is going to be considerable. The loss is going to be considerable. We all know that. But it's not just that there's light at the end of the tunnel. We know that this tunnel has an end. You may be getting used to hearing this final thought. I hope you've memorized it. But there's still a lot of misinformation out there about this outbreak, including pseudoscience remedies and false statements about how the virus operates. If something sounds incredible, it probably is. So check the facts with reputable science sources like your local public health service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. Follow the science. We couldn't do this show without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thanks to them for their help and for continuing to work on the show from their homes. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the evolution of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Zombies, Bigfoot, and Max Brooks. If you'd like to hear it again or hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And you'll also find links there to the guests you heard today. Stay safe, everyone. 